can't make it, but that's fine. There's still regulars and with us. So we'll start with who's here and then uh, let's go for it. Should we open in prayer? Hallelujah. Good to see you, Phoebe. Hallelujah. Father, we just want to worship you. We come before you today ready to hear what your word has to say to us. We thank you for the truth of the word of God. And we open our hearts to receive. We open our hearts to what you want to say. And we thank you, Father God, that your word is speaking to us. Your word is relevant and alive. I thank you that your spirit is speaking to us and revealing the truth of the word to us. And so we want to receive that now this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's go. Let's uh, let's see. Let's go to Luke chapter 13 as a starting point. And I'm going to I'm going to start some new things today. Uh, obviously, in the, for, for a while now, I've been talking about the miraculous, the power of God. And I'll, I'll always include something about that in what we, what we teach. But, um, but I, wanted, I, I had it on my heart to start a series which I've titled uh, Moving Mountains, Overcoming Giants, and Shaking Nations. How many of you know individual believers and as a church, we're supposed to be doing all of those? We're supposed to be having mountains moved in our lives, situations overcome, uh, giants that come our way and try to attack us. We're, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to overcome them. We're not supposed to be beaten down by the giants, are we? And, uh, and we're supposed to be shaking nations, seeing nations changed and transformed by the power of God. Uh, on an individual level, we want the Spirit of God moving through us to a degree that these things happen. And as a church... We want the Spirit of God moving and manifesting through us to a degree, that the, to, to the level that these things are happening. Now, I don't know about you. Let's talk about the last one for a moment, shaking nations. I don't know about you, but I'm not satisfied with, with where things are at at the moment. I didn't see enough shake, nation shaking going on. Now, praise God. Again, this is not directly meant as a criticism. It's, it's maybe meant more of a, of a challenge. But praise God for the work that we, we, we do see happening in the church. I'm not saying there's nothing good happening. There's some wonderful things happening. But, but I'm not seeing it on the scale where the nation's been shaken. I'm not seeing it on the scale where even a city is being shaken. I said, last, I said last week when I was talking in Southport and we were looking at the book of Acts, that um, you know, in the book of Acts, they had one church in a, in a city and they shook the city. We, we often have three to 500 churches in a city. <laughs> I don't know, but you know, some churches, they've got hundreds. And, they, and there's no shaking going on. And some of those churches just, just down the road from the church, people don't even know there's a church there. <laughs> and some of those churches, they're good churches. They've been there 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, maybe some of them longer. But they, they're not shaking, sending ripples of shake in, into the city and into the nation. But I believe, I believe, again, I'm not saying that just to point fingers and criticize. I'm saying that's a challenge. I'm saying that we need to begin to believe God to rise up to the level and begin to say, if we're not at that level, if things are not happening the way we, that they should be happening, then let's not be content with things with where things are. Let's begin to believe God to, to come up to a higher place. Let's begin to say, what God, what's it going to take to get to, the, to, to where we're seeing the nation and the city shaken by the power of God and the Holy Spirit flowing through churches uh, to a level that is bursting out of the walls, not just having a nice Holy Spirit time amongst us. That's what I see in the Bible. That's, that's the level that I want to believe God to get to. Amen? So, so uh, through this series, 
we're going to talk about a little bit of a little bit of all of those things. Moving mountains, overcoming giants, shaking nations. Some of it's on a bigger level, some of it's on a level individual to our lives. Now, do you, do you realize that they linked? The, 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 the effect that the church is maybe having on a, on, on a national scale is actually, whether you realize it or not, quite linked to our individual lives. Because there's a lot that we don't necessarily see on a global scale or a national scale of shaking nations. Now listen carefully to me on this one. Because the enemy has got so many individual Christians caught up chasing their tail in their own individual lives. Yeah that they're not able to really step into the fullness of things that he's got for them. He's played a strategy on us. He's got a lot of us chasing our tail. He's got a lot of Christians in a position where they, 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 they live in crisis management, one fire to the next, and, and they, they're not really able to begin to invest into the, what God's trying to do in their church and in the nation to the level they should because of this. And, and, and this is something we need to begin to realize. This is one of the areas we need to begin to realize. The enemy used a strategy, I believe, where he's got so many Christians so focused on the crises going on in their lives that they're not really able to be effective uh, in, in, in what God's called them to and what they need to be doing in their role within the church, in, 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 even in ministry, whatever. Amen? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as we go along. So actually, it's important. It's important that as individual Christians, we learn to start getting to the place where we're, we're, we're overcoming these giants. We're getting these mountains moved. We're walking in victory. We, we, we understand that this is what God has for us in his word. You know that the word of God over and over again, you, you know, we're given the old covenant. The Bible in the new covenant says that the old covenant is there for our examples. And there's many, there's examples of what not to do, like the children of Israel in the wilderness, and there's examples of what to do, and examples to follow. But you know, over and over again, the examples the Bible points to us to follow are people who overcame, people who beat their challenges. Now, I know sometimes people like to dig in Scripture and find the examples we like. I'm not going to harp on about that. I've got a little bit of a pet pedestal on that one as it is, you know, that I sometimes go on about because so many people like to point to someone in the Bible who couldn't make it, didn't make it, struggled to make it. And, oh, look at, well, what about this person? What about that? What about this? And yet it's amazing. You know, I'm going to say it anyway. A lot of times people, <laughs> it's what happens when you've got a pet pedestal on something, you've got to get, get onto it. A lot of people want to say all the time, what about Job? Oh, what about Job? What about Job? I'm going to say this, and it's there are going to be people who are not going to like this, but you know what? That you guys know, you know by now, I'm going to say what I believe needs to be said. And, um, but you know, a lot of times people point to Job. What about Job? What about Job? Well, the first thing you need to know about Job is he didn't spend his whole life in that crisis. It's about nine to 18 months, somewhere in there, depending on, you know, different ideas about it. You're not talking about a lot. Sometimes people use the book of Job to justify 20, 30, 40 years of problems in their lives. When Job was only in it for 19, 9 to 18 months. But you know what? If you read a lot of books on theology and different things, you'll hear, that you'll hear them talk about the faith of Job. And I had one minister tell me this. They said, uh, one guy was telling me, he said, 
You know, Job is an example of the highest kind of faith. I had someone tell me that. The high, and I said, oh, really? I said, and he said, yes, there, there are three kinds of faith. I, immediately I thought to myself, okay, I hope he uses some scripture here along the way. What, what, where did he get these three types of, types of faith? And then he said, he said I, the way I see it is the highest kind of faith is faith that will praise God even when God doesn't come through for you. And when God fails you and God does nothing in your life, but you still praise him anyway, that's the highest kind of faith. And I thought to myself, can you give me scripture for that? Oh, yes, Job. <laughs> and I, okay, you know, immediately something's not sitting right on here. And I'm thinking, hold on a second. Why are you pointing to someone in the Bible and claiming that person is the highest kind of faith when, listen to carefully, do you know that there's not a single scripture in the Bible that references Job and faith in the same verse. Yeah. Another Bible scholar here, and he agrees with me. Now, you will find Job is mentioned one time in the, in the New Testament, and he's, he's connected to perseverance or patience in Job. Do you tell me where in Hebrews 11 Job is mentioned? Job, Hebrews 11 is the, is the faith hall of fame. Do you, know, do, you, do you know who God does point you to? Abraham. So the, the New Testament keeps saying, this Abraham guy, go look at his faith. Go, go, look, go look at Abraham's faith. You want to know about faith? Go look at Abraham's faith. And then a few chapters later, it says, hey, hey, I want to tell you something. Go look at Abraham's faith. And a few chapters later, the New Testament says, go check Abraham's faith. Yeah. yeah? And then it says, go look at David's faith. Go look at this person's faith. Go look at Noah's faith. Go look at Moses' faith. Go look at Moses' parents' faith. But it not once does it tell you, go look at Job's faith. Now, how, why is it that vast portions of the church are looking somewhere the Bible doesn't point them when they're talking about faith? And they're turning that person into the ultimate example of faith. I'll tell you why. Because then they can create a whole doctrine in their heads that justifies their position of why you can be in faith and not get results. Instead of looking, you know, if you're going to say, oh, the, high, the greatest kind of faith, well, at least find somewhere in the Bible where it at least mentions a higher level of faith. Two times Jesus said of people they had great faith. Twice. The, the, the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15 and the centurion in, in, in Matthew 8. Jesus said, that's great faith right there. Do you know that? Here's the interesting thing. Both of those people walked away with their answer. Yeah. Both of them, those are the two people Jesus said they got great faith. Now, why do we ignore those, brush those aside and say, oh, yes, 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 I know that person had great faith. They got results. But I found a much higher type of faith. That's beyond all of these people. Let's ignore all the people Jesus pointed to about faith. Let's ignore all the people Jesus, that Hebrews 11 talks to. Let's ignore Abraham, who got his child. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Sarah received strength to conceive, dunamis, power to conceive seed. Let's ignore all these people, and let's point to Job. Because it satisfies people's own personal religious ideas a lot of the times. Yeah. 
about faith. But he, how did I get onto all of that? Well, my, my, my initial point was this. The Bible doesn't keep pointing us to people who failed and who didn't get results. It points us to people who got results, who walked into victory, who got healed, who moved their mountain, who won their battle. And it keeps saying, look at these people. They're the examples. Why? Because the Bible wants us to, God, God, God wants us to understand, the Bible wants us to understand that it's God's desire for his people to overcome some things, to get some mountains moved. And the Bible also points us to people who are not getting their mountains moved, and it tells us very often why. Not getting the giants beaten. Not getting things out of their lives. Time and time again, God has to challenge those people with things in their lives. When they entered the, the promised land, they won the first battle against, jo uh, jo uh, not, not, not against Joshua. Joshua won the first battle against Jericho. They lost the second battle against this uh, small little village or town called Ai. Was it because God just suddenly decided, well, you're going to win this battle, you're going to defeat that battle because it's the mysterious will of God why you win some and you lose some? No, they won, they, they won the one battle because they followed God's instructions. The second battle they lost because they did not follow God's instructions. There wasn't some divine intent behind why they lost the battle. It's just they didn't do it the way God said. So each time they followed the Lord, each time they walked with God, each time they did it God's way, they won. But each time they stepped aside Maybe even going to the extent of following idolatry, following the pride and, and things of their own heart, not following God's way, not following God's intent. Each time they went a different way, they started losing battles. What's the Bible trying to point us to? Stop sitting in a position where you're losing the battles and yet you keep pointing the finger at God. No, it's the divine will of God. It's the divine will of God. This is a deception the enemy is getting people into. We need to start looking into the Word of God and begin to realize God wants His people to learn how to start beating some giants. He points us to giant slayers in the Scriptures. David. He points and says, that guy beat a giant. There's a good example to follow. Amen? The children of Israel on the verge of the Promised Land who were terrified of the giants, they ain't a good example to follow. <laughs> Amen? Do you know, there's a scripture uh, in, in, in that passage with David in 1 Samuel 17, 1 Samuel 17, I think it is, where it says, there, I can give you the verse, in fact, if you want, this is, you stay in Luke, Luke 13, but there's a, there's a scripture in that passage with David and Goliath. Actually, let's go there for a moment. 1 Samuel 17, I, I want you to see this. 1 Samuel 17. We'll go to Luke 13 as well in a minute. Why am I doing this series? Because I believe God wants his people to start stepping into overcoming some battles that they're facing. There's too many Christians that have been facing long-term battles for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, either one battle or otherwise one battle after another. And they overcome one thing and the next into the next battle and they get the victory over the next thing and then into the next they're into the next challenge. And they're, and they're putting out fires. And the enemy's got them chasing their tails. And they don't know how to take the word of God. You see, one reason many Christians are not getting through some things is because no one's taught them how to take the word of God to get on top of some battles that they're facing. 
And, and, and we, need to, we need to put the word of God out in front of people and begin to say, let's, let's, let's get a vision. Let's start to say it's time to get on top of some challenges uh, rather than constantly the enemy on top of me and constantly me running from some things. Now, are you in 1 Samuel 17? Just a couple of verses. Through this series, I'm sure we're going to refer to David a lot. So I'm not going to necessarily do all about David now. We might do. <laughs> we'll see how, as, 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 we, as we're teaching what's right to get onto. But I'm sure we're going to refer to David a lot. But one thing I want you to notice about David, 1 Samuel 17, let's look at verse 23 and 24. 1 Samuel 17, verse 23 and 24. Most of us know the basics of the passage with David and Goliath, yeah? But uh, anyway, then it says, then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath. So David's talking with, uh, with, 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 um, as he talked, yeah, anyway. But as this conversation's going on, Goliath, who is this massive warrior, who's been challenging the children of Israel, and he's been challenging them for 40 days now. He's been taunting them, and nobody wants to fight him. They're all scared of him, aren't they? They're scared. And so, so it says here, uh, there was a cha the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. Well, if we read earlier in the chapter, what it means is, is he'd been challenging them. He'd said, send one of your guys to fight me, and whoever wins, wins the war. We don't have to have a big, massive war with all of us. It just has to be me against one, one person. And so the, but what, what response, what response was, was happening in the camp of Israel to this taunt. Now, what's happening here? The enemy, the enemy is taunting the people of God, isn't he? He's standing, oh, come on, let's see if you can beat me. Come on, come on, come on. And he's standing in the way, and he's becoming an obstacle to the people of God. But what response does he get from, from, from Israel before David comes? Look at this, verse 24, fear. Look at this. And all the men of Israel. Now, the church didn't exist at this time. But at that time, this is the people of God, isn't it? Yes. How are the people of God responding to this giant? How Let's ask this first. How should the people of God be responding to this giant? Should they be intimidated? Should they be afraid? But are they afraid? And as long as they're in that position of fear, are they getting any breakthroughs? Are they beating this giant? Is, is, is God just saying, well, you know, I'll just do it for you. I'll come and beat the giant because it's the divine will and purpose of God that this giant no longer be in thy life. So I'll just move him out the way. It doesn't matter whether you're in fear or not. Notice this. As long as they were in fear, as long as they were intimidated by the giant, no victory and breakthroughs were happening. It took somebody to arrive who saw things differently and had a different attitude and spirit in order to bring a breakthrough in that situation. Do you notice, it's not because it was suddenly God's divine will, it's because a person with the right attitude came into the place that caused the breakthrough. But notice this, verse 24, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, I might come back to that phrase in a minute. Notice this next one, fled from him. What does that mean? Fled. Ran away. I, I read in the New Testament, 
that, that where, it, where it says, resist the devil and he will? Who's supposed to be fleeing from who? Yeah. Where does it say in the New Testament, put on the whole armor of God that you may flee from the enemy? Where does we give me that scripture? Put on the whole armor of God, resist the devil, and you will flee from him. It's not what it says, is it? It's who's fleeing from who? But you know what? Many Christians are on the run from the enemy. Many Christians are intimidated by what the devil's doing. Many Christians have, are, are, are running. How do I know? People say, oh, no, no, they're not. In the, you better believe many of them are. Because the moment a crisis runs on their life, they run around in fear and panic. That's not how the people of God are supposed to be responding to the enemy. But in this instance, that's exactly how the people of God are responding against the enemy. Does our response matter? Well, let's, let's stick with this. I will stick with this phrase. Notice it says, when they saw the man. So th- 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 there's, there's three things in this phrase in verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw. That's your eyes, isn't it? When they saw the man, what, did, what, what, what happened? Two responses. They fled from him and, and were greatly afraid. Man says dreadfully afraid. That doesn't just mean they were like, ooh, had a chill go through my spine, a little bit of fear. That means terrified, dreadfully afraid. This is me. They are absolutely terrified of this, of this, of this, of this giant. But where did it all start? What they were looking at. Their focus. Where they, when they saw the giant, when they saw the giant. In fact, let's go, let's go quickly. I believe it's Exodus 14, I think. Just bear that in mind, because I'm going to come back to 1 Samuel 17. You might want to hold your place there if you're using a paper scripture. I know if you're using a digital one, you flick back. Exodus 14. Now, Exodus 14 is where the children of Israel have just come out of Egypt. Pharaoh's just let them go. Not willingly. He didn't let them go willingly. He was, re- he was pressured into it a bit, wasn't he? <laughs> By some plagues and a few other things. But uh, he finally let them go. He finally relented. He finally, finally said, okay, we'll let the people of God go. <coughs> but after they leave, he changes his mind, doesn't he? And he says, no, 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 no. Let's go get them back. Yeah, some people just going to harden their hearts no matter what. You know, it's a lot better to listen to the Word of God and, what God, and God's instructions than to stubbornly refuse to listen to some things and, and end up in a mess. Now, don't blame the mess on God. The mess is there because of your stubbornness. Proverbs 29, I believe it's Proverbs 29, says, He who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Now, it doesn't say God will destroy him. It shows that your own pride and stubbornness refusing to go the way God says. When God keeps saying, go down that path, and you say, I ain't going down that path, I ain't going, I'm going down that path. And, and no matter how much you walk, behind, walk, no matter how much God keeps saying, go this way, go this way. Proverbs says, Proverbs says, 
in Proverbs 1 and 2, it talks about a person who's rebuked and, and, and told, no, don't do that. They correct it and they refuse to listen. They despise instruction. And God says, do this. And they, no, no, I'm not doing that. Pride in our own stubbornness. So God says, go that way. Now, let me ask you, if God says, go that way, does that mean it's God's will that you go that way? So that way means the things that are that way are the things God wants for your life. Yes? Now, if you refuse to listen and God says, do this, and you say, no, I'm going this way, and you choose to go this way, can you say that the things on this path are God's will for you? No, you can't. Because God's given you his word, his instruction, that's the path. Proverbs 3 I believe, and 4 talks about the path of the righteous. You see, this, this illustration, which direction? It's, not, it's a scriptural illustration. The path of the righteous and the path of the unrighteous. Path is the road you're supposed to be walking on. The Spirit of God says, go this way. Did Jesus talk about broad is the, is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to love? That sounds like two different ways, doesn't it? Are they, can you choose a different path? Can, you, can God say, go this way, and you go, no, I'm going that way? Yeah, a lot of people do. God says, do it this way, pray this way, respond this way, love that person. You know, every instruction from God is setting you on a path. But when we harden ourselves and we choose a different way, do you know what happens when you're on a different path? You go through different things. I don't know if you, if, if, if we're in Warrington, if I, if I got on the road to Manchester, I'm going to go past certain things, aren't I? Now, if I get on a different road and I go on the road to Chester and North Wales, I'm going to go through different towns. They're in opposite directions. Now, if, if, I'm, if I get on the road to Chester, there's no point in me scratching my head and saying, I don't know why I'm not going through... Stratford's miles away. I'm talking about the, the Manchester path. Or, I, don't, well, I don't know why I'm not passing Manchester Airport. Because, you know, I'm driving. Just because you're driving doesn't mean you're on the right path. You're going to pass and go through dependent upon which route you're on. And we can understand that naturally, but people just can't seem to figure that out spiritually. <laughs> yeah? And when God says go that way, I almost went that way, but we've got to stay consistent on the illustration. When God says go that way, and we refuse, and we go that way, we're going to go through different things. Now, coming to the conclusion that the things I'm going through must be God's will doesn't make sense when you're not on the path he told you to be on. This might be simple logic, but I, that makes sense to me. To go, to, 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 to go through the things God has for your life, you must follow the instruction to be on the path he said be on. There's many scriptures which talk about this is the way. Walk in this path. Be led. Listen to the word. Listen to the spirit. 
Amen? But we can't blame God for what happens when we're on a path not following the instructions of what He told us to follow. Now, if you want to experience the best of all that God's got for you, it starts with listening to the instruction of being on the path He said be on. Because the things He has for your life, the good things, the blessings are in line with, and they're on the path He said be on. Amen? So, 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 again, I'm taking a lot of side journeys, but that's okay. So Pharaoh, let's try and get back to some of them. Pharaoh, he hardened his heart. When the, the, the children, God, God told Pharaoh, let my people go, but what, he refused. He hardened to that. His own pride, his own hardness, his own refusal to do what God said. What happened? Things began to go wrong. Now, it's not that God was doing, the, the, wanted all those things. I'll say God, it's not that God wanted those things for his life. He said he was refusing to, 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 he was hardening to what God said. Remember the scripture, Proverbs 29. He who remains stiff-necked, that means proud and, 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 and stubborn, basically after many rebukes, will suddenly be destroyed and that without, that without re remedy. That's, yeah, without remedy is what the scripture said. And that lines up with Proverbs 1, which talks about some things connected to that as well. And people just refuse to listen, refuse. When God keeps saying, do it this way, do it this way, do it this way, do it this way, do it this way. And we refuse to, and we keep refusing year after year after year after year. And then suddenly things go wrong in our lives. People go, oh God, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening to me? He's, it's not because he's doing it to you. He has been trying to put you on a different path for years now. You're on a path. He's telling you don't be on that path. He knows what's further down the path you've chosen to be on. Maybe there's a big cliff drop and you're careering at 100 miles an hour toward it. And he keeps saying, Turn left, get off this road, get off this road, get off this road. No, 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 no. Whatever happens in my life is the will of God. I'm just going to refuse to listen to God, be proud, rebel, blame it all on God, but keep on the path I want to be on. And then you hit a cliff, everything goes wrong, now it's all God's fault, according to some people. <laughs> and the root of a lot of theology is blame it all on God. When the Bible keeps saying, Pointing us and saying, when it went wrong for people, it's because they didn't listen to God. When it wrong, went wrong in the second battle with Joshua, when they went to the battle of Ites, because they didn't follow what God said. <clears throat> in order to win the battle against Joshua, uh, against Jericho, what did God say? March around seven times over seven days. Now, what if Joshua sat down with his military generals and they all thought, that's the dumbest military strategy I've ever heard. I have a much better idea. We heard there's a little tunnel down the back where we can send a few guys to go and open the gate for us. That makes more sense as a military strategy. Let's do it our way. What would have happened if they had not followed God's instructions? God's power wouldn't have manifested. And then they could, then they could blame God all they want. Oh, God didn't help us take the city. No, God's going to help you when you do it the way he said to do it. He has not committed himself to backing you doing it your way. He will back his way. 
Amen? So anyway, let's get back to Exodus 14. So, so Pharaoh keeps stubbornly hardening his heart. And even after letting them go, he stubbornly, he stubbornly hardens again and tries to go after them. In Exodus 14, we have this. Um, so so they've, they've come out of Egypt, and now they get to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is a bit of an impossible obstacle, isn't it? What are we talking about? Moving mountains? Overcoming giants? Well, let's, you know, you could say moving mountains, crossing Red Seas. Yeah. We, we can expand this title more and more. Moving mountains, crossing Red Seas, overcoming giants, shaking nations. There we go. New title. Okay. So this is a kind of a similar situation. Might not be a giant or a mountain, but it's a bit of a mountain of an ocean or a, a, a giant of an ocean. Right in front of them, the Red Sea. But there's only, there's only one point I want you to see here. That God came through for them, but I do want you to notice something like this. Verse 10, Exodus 14, verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, so now this is Pharaoh chasing after them, and they, they've got the Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh behind them, trapped. But notice this phrase. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel did what? Someone, someone say, say what happened next. The children, when, when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes. And you says, look, man says, lifted up their eyes. Do you see that? Yeah. Now remember, I read for you in 1 Samuel 17, the children of Israel, what did they do before they fled from the giant? Saw. Saw. I want you to begin to realize this. What you're looking at, what you're focused on is very important. Your eyes, your focus is a big part of whether you're going to beat that giant or whether you're going to flee from it. So no, no, notice this. So it says, when they lifted up their eyes, what happened? Behold, the Israels marched after them, so they were very... Notice the connection. They lifted up their eyes, they were afraid. What they saw, what they were focused on, what they were looking at, <coughs> caused a response of fear. Is that what happened in 1 Samuel 17? When they saw the giant, they fled because they were dreadly, dreadfully afraid. Do you see the same principle? They saw, they were afraid. Go to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. <coughs> your vision, your focus, your eyes is actually really important. If you want to you move mountains, cross red seas, overcome giants, your focus is important. You know, they came to, came to David and they said, have you seen this giant? But David, David's not really focused on the giant. His response was very different. It's, uh, where did I say? Matthew 14. Let me just get there as well. Matthew 14, 22. This is Jesus walking on the water and then Peter walking on the water. Verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. 
Behold, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the winds, for the wind was contrary. Now, notice this. Even before Jesus walked on the sea and got to the boat, there's already wind and waves going on. It didn't suddenly arrive later when Peter stepped out of the boat. People because oh, the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves going on right before the whole, even the miracle's happening. Yeah? Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea, as you do, strolling down the ocean. And when the disciples... Say it again. When the disciples saw him, notice this connection. The Bible shows this connection multiple times. When the, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. Do you see again within the same verse, eyes fear. What you're looking at, fear. Now, it's not, this, this one, this one, you know, it shows this principle, and I want, you, I want you to see a little bit further on what happens. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer, it's I, do not be afraid. Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, I don't know about you, but if I saw someone walking on the water, I'd probably forget about everything else going on around me, too. <laughs> A tornado could go on past me, and I probably wouldn't even notice it. I'm just like, hold on, there's someone walking on the water over there. I get the impression it's pretty much all Peter sees for a moment is Jesus walking on the water. He forgets about everything. Remember, the wind and the waves is happening all around him. It's been happening since the start. It didn't suddenly arrive. But I get the impression for a moment Peter forgot about all of that. He's so captivated with what he's seeing with Jesus. Okay, verse 29. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He's, he's a miracle functioning in his life, isn't there? Power of God's manifesting in his life. Now, now what happens? Verse 30. But, but when he saw, when he did what? When he... Do you see the same thing again? When he saw. Well, that wind was there before. The waves and the wind were all there before. This is why I say, I think for a moment he forgot about it all. He knew it was there. He's a fisherman. He's been out in the boat in it. But for a moment he completely forgot about all that. And all he could see was this, wow, someone's walking on the water. It's Jesus. But as he's getting out of the boat, as he's walking on the water, as he's walking in the miraculous, the power of God's flowing on his life, what happens? His eyes, his focus, what he's looking at changes. Now he's flowing in the miraculous. I mean, I'm sure when he first got out of the boat, he's like, wow, I'm walking on the water too. Then he starts going, to, going toward Jesus. I don't know how far Jesus was away from him. We're not really told. At least a few steps. But now that he's walking in the miraculous, now he starts to look at other things. But the moment his eyes and his focus changes, what happens? <coughs> but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, what happened? He was 
See the connection. And then what happened? He saw the wind was boisterous. He was afraid. What happened next? Began to sink. Now, did Jesus intend him to sink? Was it the will of God that he sank? Is there anything in the passage, apart from us adding in information from our own head, but is there anything in that passage that can cause us to conclude clearly from Scripture that God wanted him to sink? And what, you see, we draw these conclusions. There's people who teach all kinds of things about how God wanted someone to sink and go down and not be healed and not, be, not get a result, not get a breakthrough, not move the mountain, not overcome the giant. Must have been the will of God. What does the Bible point to as to why he sank? Which started where? With what he was focusing on. Does your focus affect the manifestation of the power of God in your life? Yeah. Yes. Now, how quickly did his miracle shut down? Did it take six months? No? It's a pretty much an immediate effect. Now, now how, what, what, he cries out, Lord, save me. Now, I thank God Jesus was merciful. I mean, he's a good, he's a good God. Jesus is the good shepherd. He... he does he, you know, he doesn't just walk past, laugh at him and say, you're the one who, who, you know, sank, you swim boat, back to the boat, I'll meet you there. No, he helps him back. But was it Jesus' perfect will for him to, 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 for that to happen? No. He, he said, come walk on the water. So he gets him back to the boat. And what does Jesus begin to talk to him about? He gets him back to the boat, but then he begins to correct him. He starts to say, this is where it went wrong. And what does he say? Oh, you of little? Now, if, if you just go by the information in the passage, which is a good way to approach the Bible, rather than adding bits in, what is the only thing that went wrong? From Peter's point of view, okay, the thing that went wrong is he sank. But within Peter, did he, did he, did he obey the word to step out on the, on the water? Did he respond to what Jesus said? Yeah, so he's obeying the word. That's a good thing. That's a good characteristic of faith. Is there any indication he didn't believe what Jesus said? Was he standing there saying, I don't believe that when I step out on the boat, you're going to manifest. He believed what Jesus said. There's no, there's no indication he didn't believe that word come. But his focus producing fear. As his focus changed. Now he could still say, well, I believe in the power of that word come. The problem wasn't that he didn't believe the word. The problem was his focus, his attention, stirring up fear in his life. And Jesus indicated 
that that had an effect upon his faith. And he said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? I don't, I don't believe the little faith was when he stepped out on the word come and was walking on the water. Was, there's no little faith in that, is there? That's not where the little faith was. The little faith came when his focus adjusted. It affected his faith level. I'd say, I'd say stepping out on water to follow the word Jesus is pretty good faith. There's no faith issue at the start, but the miracle's happening. But what I want you to see is one shift inside of him with his attention and his focus, everything starts to go wrong. Jesus had to get him back to the boat, correct him. Is your, is your focus important? Is your eyes? We saw it with David and Goliath. So it fair. I could I could show you other scriptures, but but we'd be here all day. But we, and we see it with, with, with Peter walking on the water. <coughs> Focus your eyes. You know the Bible. The Bible says, "Without a vision." Now, vision is good in many senses. It's good to have a vision as a church. But that's not fully what that verse is talking about. It could be one application, but it's not all. What is vision? What you see, what you focus on. Your eyes, what you see. Without a vision, my people, is there a connection between what your eyes are seeing or not seeing, and whether you're perishing or not. Isn't, doesn't that line up with what I've just shown you? It was their eyes, their vision, their focus adjusted. <coughs> your eyes, your vision, what you're looking at, what you're focusing on, is going to affect whether you overcome that giant and move that mountain. Is it enough just to pray, Lord, deal with the Lord, help me out, deal with this, while I keep focusing on the wrong thing? No. There's instances God, in His mercy, will help you in that, but there's also times He says, I need you to grow up. Did what the children of Israel saw? When they sent 10 spies into the land, 12 spies, sorry, 10 came back, bad report. But is what they saw a factor in how they responded? If you go read the passage, it's big in there. We saw the sons of, of Anak there. We saw the giants there. In fact, I think you might even find that, the, I'm, I'm not entirely sure because I'm doing this better off the top of my head, you might even find the, 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 in that passage it shows they were afraid. It's all based upon what they're looking at. There's another scripture there that lines up with what I'm saying here. Now go, now go to 2 Corinthians 4.
when you're going through a battle, when you're facing a giant, when you've got a mountain in front of you, if you allow the enemy to get you captivated with and focused on that all the time, it's going to affect your faith level. It's going to affect your fear level. And it's going to affect whether you get through that thing. Now, doesn't the enemy want our eyes constantly on the problem? The moment you try to get your eyes off the problem, the enemy throws another problem in it. So that, you know, oh, just the moment someone tries to get their eyes on the word, I'm going to really get my focus on the word of God. The enemy throws another problem in. What's he trying to do? He wants your vision affected, what you're looking at. Your vision is very connected to your faith life. You cannot have strong faith in God while focusing on the problem all the time. I heard one minister say this. He said, very often when you're trying to help people, if you cannot get their attention and their focus off of their problem and onto God, it's going to be very difficult to help them. The enemy gets people captivated with the problem they're going through, and it's to a point that sometimes it's all they can see. This is a strategy of the enemy. It's one of the things he's using to stop the people of God getting on top of some things. Your vision. Your vision. I like, I, this is the illustration I like to use. You see, anyone ever been fishing here? How do you, you know, I'm, I'm talking about traditional fishing, not like modern super trawler fishing. Fishing rod fishing, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Been a long time since I went fishing, but when I was a child, I went a few times. But now, your fishing rod is connected to what? Well, you're on one side, but, but what else do you have with a fishing rod? You've got nylon, the nylon lead, yeah? And you put a hook and the bait on. What do you do? Is you cast that out. Now, the fish you want is way out there. But ultimately, what you want is the fish to grab the bait. And when it, when it, get, when it grabs the bait, it gets attached to the hook, attaching it to the nylon, attaching it to you. Now, is the fish yet in your possession? And the fish is way out there in the ocean or lake or whatever but it becomes attached to you by that nylon lead. And now once it is attached to you, you draw it to yourself. You start to pull it in. Okay? Your vision is that nylon lead. What you see attaches you to something. And your faith will draw into your life what your vision is attached to. you're attaching yourself and focusing on the problem, you can say as much as you want, but I'm believing God, I'm believing the Bible. Your vision is drawing the problem toward you because that's what's attached to you. It may, it, it, okay? Your healing may not yet be visible in your life, but you have to see it with your vision first. Jesus didn't just talk about people hearing, he talked about people seeing as well. In terms of the word, hear the word, but he also talked about people, these people do not see. Do not see. 
did Jesus treat seeing some things as important? It is important. You've got to let the Word of God build a vision on the inside of you. And you've got to focus on the Word so that it builds that. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of weird stuff, okay? This is Bible. I can back this up with a lot more Scripture than I've actually referred to. We walk by faith and not by? Is there a connection between faith and sight? If your sight is on the wrong thing, let me give you another scripture. Where, where did I say go? Second Corinthians 4. Go just a little bit earlier. Second Corinthians 3 first. Second Corinthians 3 verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face. What's that veil? Well, he's likening it to the veil that was put over Moses' face. If you go up, verse 12, he's likening, he's talking about the Mos Moses put the veil. Remember when Moses' face shone with the glory of God, he put a veil over his face. Why was that veil there? to stop the children of Israel hearing him talk? <laughs> no, to stop the children of Israel seeing. Yeah? So in this passage, he likens the veil that Moses put over their face to, look at verse 13, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. doesn't say their minds were deafened. Blinding has to do with sight, what you're seeing. In other words, saying their mind was blinded is saying they couldn't see some things. Yeah? Do you see all, all these references to sight? They couldn't see some things. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away. What does the veil do? Does it stop you hearing the word? No, it stops you seeing some things. I'm just throwing out a few things here, but I, I want you to see how prominent this is in the Scripture. Now let's go to verse 18. But we all, who's this talking to now? Us. With unveiled face. He's just talked about how the veil is taken away in Christ. In other words, if the veil's taken away and the, the purpose of the veil was to stop you seeing some things, what should happen if the veil is taken away? You should start seeing some things. Yeah? We all, with unveiled face, beholding. What does the word behold mean? Looking. To behold. If you go to the original word, it's got to do with looking at. Looking at. Beholding as in a mirror. Now, what does a mirror do? Reflect sound? 
reflects sight. You see, this whole passage is, is, is about what you're seeing or what you're not seeing. Beholding or looking at as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, what's going to happen if you are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord? Are being transformed. Do you see the transformation taking place is connected to what you are looking at? Do you see this? What if you're not looking at it? Is the transformation going to take place? Is the transformation going to just take place because it's the will of God for you to be transformed? And if you're not transformed, clearly it wasn't the will of God for you to be transformed. No. You've got to be looking. The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same. What, the same what? I realize we're reading different translations, but I'm hoping the words should be quite similar. We are being transformed into the same image. Image. What's an image? An image is something you see. This whole verse is about things you're looking at. Is Jesus called the image of God? God gives us an image. An image is something you look at, not something you hear. How do you look at it? Well, a picture is built up through words in the Word of God. But God gave us an, a visible image of himself in Jesus. The image of Christ. God gave us an image. What are we supposed to do with that image? How? By looking at it. Jesus is the image of the Father, and we are supposed to be transformed into his image. But we're not going to be transformed into his image unless we're looking at the image. The transformation takes place based upon what you're looking at, what you're seeing. This is what I'm trying to show you. Do you see, do you, do you see what I'm saying? It's connected to... Now, you need to realize it's not just about your natural eyes. Okay, now this is where he then goes into the next chapter. It's only a chapter later. He hasn't really changed topic a lot. Because at chapter four at the start, he talks about the gospel being veiled, the God, the God of this world blinding the minds. He refers to in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, he talks about the glory of Christ who is the image. Again, he refers to the image. And then in verse 18... He comes to this, while we do not look at the things which are seen. Is he still talking about what you're looking at? While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Now, notice what he does not say. He does not say we do not look at anything. He doesn't say we walk around with our eyes closed. When he says we do not look at the things that are seen, but, now, 
There's, there's a parenthesis implied statement in the sentence. Language works like this. I'm not adding something in. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but we, and this is the parenthesis implied idea, but we do look at the things which are not seen. I'm not changing this phrase. This is how language works, yeah? There's an implied statement in there. In other words, he's not saying you don't look at anything. He's saying you've got to make sure you're looking at something specific. Your focus, your eyes, what you're looking at matters. What your attention is focused on is going to affect whether you're getting a result. Did, 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 did it say in Proverbs 4, my son, pay attention to my words. Yes. Now notice this. This is Proverbs 4, verse 20 to 24. You can write it down in your notes. I'll quote it. My son, pay attention to my words. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from. Some will say mouth, some say ah. So let's go there for a minute. Proverbs 4. Proverbs 4, 20, 21 and 22. Everyone there? My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. <coughs> We've heard a lot about the hearing of the word. We've not heard a lot about seeing the word. The Word of God has got to build a vision on the inside of you. The enemy has got a lot of Christians caught up in a position where all they can focus on is the problem they're going through. Now, their focus is on their problem, and then they're saying, Lord, help me pray, Lord. And, and they, and, but I'm believing God to come through this thing. But actually, when you talk to them, it's very clear they're focused. They are captivated in and focused in on that problem. And every time they try to look away and look at the word, the enemy does something and their attention, their focus goes straight back onto the problem. We're going to start to come to a place where we overcome some of these things and overcome some of these giants. We've got to get our attention and our eyesight shifted onto what God says. While we do not look at the things which are seen, what's seen? Well, for example, the, the mountain, the problem. But we do look at the things which are not seen. What, what's not necessarily seen at the time? Your breakthrough, your answer, yeah. your healing, your result yeah. for a start. Some other things, I'm sure. The manifestation of the power of God. Well, where are you going to be able to look at what you can't see? How do you look at something you can't see? You have to see it. He's just told you. He's just told you. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to. Do not let them. What's them? My words, my sayings. Keep my words in your eyes. 
Where are you going to see what you can't see in the natural? In the Word. The Word of God has got to start building up an image. If you're not looking at the Word, and you're not allowing the Word of God to build the image on the inside of you, and what the Word says, that's why the enemy wants Christians kept out of the Word, and he wants to keep Christians confused about the Word. He wants to keep Christians in a position where they think, well, we don't need the Word. All we need is the Spirit, and all we need is other things. You can't, if you can't get the Word of God, you're not going to build the right vision. The Word of God is given to us to build a vision of some things, build into us. I need to stop. I just saw my time. I thought I've been going about 20 minutes up here. Sorry, Tony. You can steal some of my time from my third session. Don't worry. Are you getting something out of this? This is really important. We're not taught about this enough. And, and yet I've shown you quite a wealth of scripture. This isn't just pulling this out of the air, yeah? What you're looking at, where are you going to see it? Where are you going to build a vision? You've got to start to build a vision on the inside of you of what the word says. And let the word shape and form that vision. That will attach you to that answer, to that result. And then your faith begins to draw in what your vision is attached to. Many people's faith is not working because their vision is not attached to something. Or their vision is attached to the wrong thing. They're looking at the wrong thing. I don't know about you. I will close. I promise I'll close my notes. How many of you have ever driven driven a car? Now, I mean, once you've driven for a while, you get a bit better at this. But I certainly remember when I first started driving. I mean, what what are you supposed to do when you drive a car? Are you supposed to keep your eyes on? Well, <clears throat> what happens? How many of you have ever, how many of you have ever start, like, looked, something's caught your attention on the side of the road? Yeah. Oh, look. And what, what happens? Oh, can I give you one more scripture on this topic? Is that all right? I promise you can take some of my time. I want to give you one more scripture because it's relevant to, to what I'm saying right here. Hebrews 11. But let me make the point. I've got to find the scripture quickly. But, 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 but you're supposed to keep your eyes on the road when you're driving, yeah? But what happens if you take your eyes off the road? What, what happens if you start to look to the left? If you, if you start just in the natural... And no pointing fingers and saying he does that all the time, she does that all the time. Um, <laughs> if you start to look at something, what happens? Do you know that your, your hands tend to follow your eyes? Yes. Now, you get better at this as you've been a driver, so you can maybe avoid it for a few seconds. But certainly remember when I first started driving, I mean, literally, your eyes go this way. Next thing, you put your eyes on the road, and you've drifted right off course. Do you know that your direction is affected by what you're looking at? This is why they tell runners. This is even natural stuff. This is why they tell runners, keep your eye on the finish line. They tell runners, when running a race, don't look at the guy next to you, especially if it's a sprint. Jogging, long distance jogging, maybe a little bit of a drift, you know, it's not as big, but they still trip over each other. What happens if you're running and you start to look at the guy next to you? You know what will happen? You will drift into his lane. 
It's amazing. You don't drift the opposite way. You drift the direction you're looking. And the next thing you know, two of you have a collision. And now you both of you lose the race. What your eyes look at, you, you move in the direction of what you're looking at. Now let me give you one scripture to back that up. Hebrews 11, verse 14. Sorry, verse 15. And truly, if they had called to mind, now if you call something to mind, that means you start to think about it. That's your focus. It's your focus. Truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to? Wow. So if you start thinking about where, he's saying, if they started thinking about where they come from, what would happen? Their direction would change. Their whole direction would follow what they're focusing on. One of the, one of the reasons God couldn't get the children of Israel to move forward is because they kept looking back. He helped them as much as he could, but they reached a point he said, it can't take you any further. They kept calling to mind what it was like all the way back there in Egypt. They kept looking backwards. They kept going on and on about the past and where they were. One of the reasons God doesn't want you constantly focused on your past is because he wants you to move forward in direction. If you're always looking at the past, you know, you're going to, okay? Your direction is affected by what you're looking at. So what happens again? That runner, if he looks at the wrong thing, it's going to go the wrong direction. If you're driving a car and you start to look that way, you will, your car will move in the direction you're looking at. Same thing's true with your spiritual life. You'll move in the direction of where your focus is at. If you want to move toward healing, victory, moving mountains, what do you need to start focusing on? You need to keep those in front, in front of your eyes. Yes. Yes. Amen? All right. Let's stop. I've gone on quite long at that session. But, but I think that at least wraps up.